0: Bibles to 1 Peter, we are in a series going through the book of 1 Peter, and um, I don't know why exactly this is, but for whatever reason, when I decided to preach through the book of 1 Peter, and, and the theme of the book deals with Christian suffering, and then ultimately how God can be glorified through suffering, um, I had no idea that for so many people that I've talked to, and myself not excluded, there have been, there have been tough times. And there have been tough times where I have found that the things that I'm reading and studying in 1 Peter have been very directly applicable to my life. And I hope that's been the case for you too. Now, I know everybody's not necessarily going through the valley of the shadow of death right now. Um, But if if you're not, there's going to come a time. We all have tough times um, because the truth of the matter is life frequently isn't fair. Uh, You've probably heard the expression that no good deed goes unpunished. And, uh, you know, the wicked of this world often seem to get away with it and live a good life. And, well, for a while anyway. And why are these things true? And so a question that's commonly asked is, why do the righteous suffer? Why do the righteous suffer? And that often is the question that people think is the theme when they read the book of Job, for example. And we sang a song, you know, blessed be your name, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. That comes right out of the book of Job, as Job lost everything. But in the book of Job, the interesting thing about this question, why do the righteous suffer? That question is never answered. Job never gets an answer why all those things happen to him. All throughout the book, you can read it and check it out. And in our lives, the Lord tells us that there's going to be times of suffering. There's going to be times of great trial and difficulty and trouble, and I guess just suffice it to say that Jesus warned us that that would happen. So return your tray tables and seat backs to the upright and locked position and brace for impact. I mean, it's just going to happen. It's inevitable. So what we can do is kind of prepare for it. And so maybe the better question to ask instead of why do the righteous suffer is... How should I respond? And that's really what we're going to see as we walk through First Peter, and we're in chapter number 3 and the second half of chapter number 3 today, and um, what we're going to see is that contrary to our human nature, contrary to our reflex response, which would be to get angry or fight back or seek revenge, well, certainly that's not allowed in the Scripture. In fact, if you refer back to last week's message in 1 Peter 3 and verse 9, it says not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing. And we're reminded in Romans 12 and verse 19 that we're not to seek revenge. We're to leave that to the Lord, that that vengeance belongs to him, and he's going to take care of it. Jesus himself said, if a man smite you on the cheek, turn him the other cheek. And so this idea of turning the other cheek is... Well, that's just not easy to do sometimes. And these are hard issues. It's a hard issue to deal with. Hey, do good and be persecuted. Oh, yeah, and when that happens, don't fight back. I mean, you might respond like I might respond and say, well, wait a minute, Jeff. You're, you're asking me to be somebody that I'm not. And I would say, exactly. Let the Lord Jesus live through you instead. That's what the Lord is calling us to, not to act like ourselves, but to act like Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, I'm going to start where we left off. We're in verse number 13 of 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. Just follow along, if you will. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason for the hope that is in you, "'With meekness and fear, having a good conscience, "'that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, "'they may be ashamed that falsely accuse "'your good conversation in Christ. "'For it is better, if the will of God be so, "'that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. "'For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, "'the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, "'being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, "'by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison.' Which sometimes were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto, even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Let's pray together. So, Lord, as we come before this passage of Scripture and as we, again, are reminded of the unjust suffering of the saints, the persecution that comes upon those of us that follow the things that are good, we ask for you to speak to our hearts today. We ask for you to give us wisdom. We ask for you to show us what would be the proper response Lord, I specifically want to pray for each and every one that's listening to my voice right now that would find themselves in a time of suffering. May you give us comfort and strength and wisdom to know how to answer the persecution. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And that is our title of today's message, Answering Persecution. And we're going to see two aspects of that. The first one is your answer toward men. Your answer toward men. And this is going to be the first several verses, 13 to 17. The direct context really is how you respond directly to those who are your persecutors. And so that is the circumstance. Letter A, the circumstances are persecution of you. People who are literally persecuting you directly. And it says that this persecution that comes, it comes as a result of, as the Bible says, following that which is good. The persecution coming in the context that is addressed is the persecution that comes as a result of you following that which is good. Now, if we compare Scripture with Scripture, we learn that only God is good, right? Matthew 19 and verse 17 when the guy comes to Jesus and he says, good master, you know, what thing should I do to have eternal life? And he says, why are you calling me good? There's only one that's good, and that's God. And so we understand that God is the only one that's really any good, and, and so that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can conclude, therefore, and this is in your notes, following that which is good is following God. That's an important distinction Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 1 makes it very clear, be ye followers of God as dear children. That's not news to probably most all of you. Jesus Christ, all through his earthly ministry in the Gospels, what did he say to the disciples as he met them? Come, follow me, you know, leave your nets, leave your boats, come, follow me, take up your cross, follow me, leave your job behind, come, follow me. And so we are to be followers of that which is good. We are to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be followers of God as dear children. Now, in his earthly life and ministry, we see over and over again, and we'll get to it in the latter part of this message today, that Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of one who was persecuted for righteousness' sake. He did no wrong ever, and yet he suffered the ultimate punishment and the death on the cross. But they persecuted him for telling the truth, and he warns us in his word that You're not above your master. You're not above your Lord. If they persecuted me, he said they're also going to persecute you. And so if he was the follower of the ultimate example of doing what's good, and if we are followers of that, then we also can expect that there's going to be some trouble that comes our way. How does that play out practically in some details? Well, I gave you a couple of cross-references from the Scripture. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 11. But thou, O man of God, flee these things, and the things that is referenced are previous in that chapter, sinful things, but rather it says, follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Well, these are spirit-filled characteristics of a person walking with the Lord, of a man of God. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22, he says to Timothy, flee also youthful lusts, but follow, on the other hand, righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So in your following of God and you're walking in the steps of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are going to find that these are the characteristics of life that are going to be manifest in your life. You're going to follow after righteousness. You're going to follow after faith and godliness and love and patience and peace and meekness. And oh, and by the way, you're going to do it together with others who are following those things in their life as well. And by virtue of following those things that are good, I'm now, if good is in this direction, well, then the evil is the direction I've left behind. So I'm going to flee the evil things while I'm following the good things. So be followers of that which is good. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, we've referred to already in this study, "'Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution.'" live godly in Christ Jesus, you could equate with following that which is good. And so I want you to see that it's not just not doing evil. It's not just that bad things come to you and you might react by saying, wait a minute, I didn't do anything wrong. It's not just not doing wrong. It's actively doing something right. It's actually following intentionally after that which is good. So, following intentionally after that which is good would also be, in your notes, actively pursuing evangelism. Well, where do you get that? Well, what is the gospel? The gospel is good news. So, if you're going to follow that which is good, then you're going to follow hard after the gospel. And listen, if you have been involved actively in evangelism and in talking to other people about their sin condition and about the the salvation that is in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are regularly sharing your faith with people who need it, you're gonna suffer persecution because people, sinful men, don't particularly appreciate you pointing out their sin and sinful men don't particularly love you being the one going up to them and reminding them that there is an ultimate judgment for their sin. That's not their best day here in that news. And depending on your condition and circumstance and where you are in the world and the bias of the mindset of the person hearing you, well, it can bring some visible persecution to your life. And that's really what we saw in the days of Jesus Christ. It's what we see frequently in mission contexts around the world, that sharing your faith runs counterculture to pre-existing false religious prejudices. And people are very emotional about those things. And these prejudices of their religion drives a jealousy within them which makes them feel like we must silence this man because he's threatening our way of life. He's threatening our religion. He's threatening our thoughts, our philosophies of how life should be carried out. Doesn't he know that in our country for thousands and thousands of years, we have been Hindus or Buddhists or Muslims or whatever the case might be. Don't, doesn't he realize that? And so they could potentially get very violent. And you've heard stories of situations like that. Hopefully that's never had to happen to you. But missionaries who work in countries that have deep-rooted animosity against Christianity, they know what that's all about. They understand it. So can I say to you that if you just live your private life, Moral, suburban life, never really open your mouth to witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, you just kind of live and let live, well, then you're probably going to have a nice, happy, problem free life. And you know, you may say, well, that's kind of what I want. (laughs) But you may find that your life never really did any good, it never really made a difference. But you get out there, and you pursue winning people to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're going to see that there's opposition. There just is. Verse number 13 starts out with the phrase, And who is he that will harm you? Well, let me just tell you some people that will harm you. 1 John 3, 13, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you the world will harm you. The system of this world is set on a course directly opposed to the course that the Lord Jesus Christ wants for your life and for his word to go out. And so there will be things and circumstances associated with this world system that will, it'll be like you're the fish swimming upstream against the, against the grain. Uh, I'll tell you who else will try and harm you, that's the devil. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 8, be sober, be vigilant, Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. So take yourself to a place where the gospel's never been preached. Go amongst the people who have never heard the gospel before. Stand and boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel of salvation, the greatest news that ever was. And see how well they receive it. Because on a first reception, most people are going to be visibly opposed to such a thing it shakes their foundation now people do receive the lord when they hear it the first time and god does what god does and that is why we do what we do who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good well the lord the world will seek to harm you the devil will seek to harm you and he'll use people to do it second thessalonians chapter 3 and verse number 2 and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for all men have not faith Well, verse 2 comes right after verse number 1, and in verse number 1, Paul says, Hey, pray that God would open doors of utterance for us. Well, on the direct context of pray that we can open our mouth and speak the mystery of the gospel the way God intends, he says, Oh, yeah, and by the way, pray that the unreasonable and wicked men don't stop us. Because when you take a stand to open your mouth and proclaim the truth of the gospel, there will be inevitably some unreasonable and wicked men that will try and stop you with that. So, what should your response be? That's what we're going to look at next. What is the response that God expects from us in such circumstances? Well, in this passage of Scripture, we have a three, three-fold response laid out for us, and the first one is to be submissive. To be submissive. It says in verse 14, if that happens to you, he says, Happy are ye. Now, you read that and you think, that's got to be a mistranslation. <laughs> Everybody's coming. I'm doing good. They're coming at me. And it says, hey, good day for you. Happy are you? Okay, well, we got to, you know, obviously get the context exactly what's going on here. The the idea is this. Happy are ye has to come in the understanding of, and that's why I called it submissive. You you have to learn to just surrender to it. You, You have to learn to not fight it because it's not your fight. They're not even actually mad at you. They're they're mad at the Lord. They're mad at his word. But there are some things that you can actually, as a Christian brother standing for the Lord, be happy about when these adverse circumstances come into your life. You can be happy about why you are suffering, right? Later on in the passage, it says, if it's the will of God that you have to suffer, at least make sure you're suffering for doing right, not for doing evil, right? So you can be happy about why you're suffering. You can be happy about who it is you're suffering for. You're suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not suffering for your foolishness, right? If you're suffering for your own foolishness, well, yeah, sorry. <laughs> we, we, all, we all, you know, I was talking with a brother this morning. We all, we all pay stupid tax every once in a while. I mean, it just happens. But that's not what we're talking about in context. And the context is talking about suffering for the Lord. Oh, by the way, you can also be happy about the rewards. That you'll receive as a result of standing for what's right, pursuing the things that are good, and then actually having to endure the suffering. You can be happy about the fellowship that you'll have with the Lord Jesus Christ, which in Philippians 3 calls the fellowship of his sufferings, right? And so now you have something else in common with the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, having done right and having suffered for it and endured responding properly, So, under the category of being submissive, it would say, I would say, don't fear men. It says in verse 14, be not afraid of their, the men who are persecuting you, their terror. How do you do that? Well, you keep the right attitude, as it would be found in Psalm 56 and verse number three what time I am afraid, I'll trust in thee. Or in Hebrews 13 and verse 6, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. And if you go backwards into Hebrews chapter 11 and read the list of the terrible things that man can do unto men, then you'll understand the context of 13 and verse 6. Don't fear men. Be submissive. Surrender to it. Let the Lord take, take up your issues. And then it says, don't be troubled. Neither be troubled, verse 14. Now, neither be troubled, obviously, is a reference to internal struggles. Don't be troubled on the inside. The trouble has already showed up on the outside, right? I mean, there's nothing you can really do about that. So 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 to 10 address it where it says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Verse 8, we are troubled on every side. The external circumstances are very troubling but yet not distressed. I'm not troubled on the inside. I'm not distressed on the inside. The trouble comes from the outside, but I'm not going to be troubled on the inside. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. I like the way it puts it in Second Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 3 through 5, speaking of the tribulation and difficulties we go through in our lives. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Friends, don't forget that if you're going through difficulties. God is the God of mercies. He's the God of all comfort. Verse 4, who comforteth us in all, all our tribulation. Why? That we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. By the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. So that's your response. You, you can be submissive to it. You can be happy about these things that Christ will do in and through you to make an F eff, an effect in this world all around you as a result, and knowing that your fellowship and oneness with Him is closer and stronger than it's ever been. In the past. Yes, I understand the circumstances are not wonderful. Yes, I agree. I want to get out of them as quickly as possible. But maybe, just maybe, you won't get out of them until you learn to submit to them. Something to think about. The second thing that we would have as our response is that it should be sanctifying. It says in verse 15, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. What exactly does that mean? Well, to sanctify literally means to set apart. It means to put it in its proper place. And so what he's trying to tell us is, hey, when you're going through the tough times, make sure that you put God in the proper place in your heart and your life that he needs to have. Make sure that your focus is where it needs to be. And an illustration that's often used and I find very helpful is that of a cross and a throne. And you can think of your life this way, that inside of your heart, there are two places. There is a cross, and there is a throne. And maybe you've heard this illustration before. And there are two people. And there, there, there's you, and there's the Lord Jesus. And one of you is going to be on one of those places, and the other one is going to be on the other one of those places. He says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. If you put Jesus on the throne of your heart and in your life, Then by default, you put yourself on the cross, which means the Lord is the boss. He is the king. He is on the throne, and he is calling the shots. And you are nailed to the cross in this illustration such that you are unable to intervene and mess up his plan because he has a plan to work in and through you in your life. The problem occurs when too frequently we as Christian people decide, I'm going to switch places. I want to be on the throne for a while because I'm a little tired of the Lord's plan for me. It hasn't been looking too great lately. So I'm going to jump up on the throne and I'm just going to nail Jesus back on the cross. And that's a good way to think about it because to sanctify the Lord God always in your heart would mean give him his place, give him his due. Let him be the true Lord and King in your life and sit on the throne and call the shots and lead you and live through you. By the way, you couldn't possibly live the life prescribed if you're on the throne. You you don't have the tools. None of us do. Only the Lord can do that. So we must sanctify him and give him the, the freedom to lead as he sees fit. And the third point is to be scriptural, to be scriptural. Verse 15, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason for the hope that is in you. Again, remember the context. The context is a Christian who is on trial by his persecutors, okay? So if they are persecuting you and if they are calling you into trial like they did Jesus or like they did Paul, hey, you need to be able to give an answer, and that answer needs to be a scriptural answer and this can be a general application for all of us at any time in our lives right so if you glance forward into 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse number 11 it says if any man speak let him speak how as the oracles of God well the oracles of God that's that's the word of God so if any man speak let him speak let him give an answer from the scriptures, let him give an answer as of the oracles of God. What good does it do you really? How many times have you been, you know, in a, in a in crossroads with somebody and it's, it's your philosophy or mind against their philosophy and mind and you have a suggestion or a thought and he has a suggestion or a thought and you're just never going to come to terms? Well, if you bring in the roaring lion and just let him do his thing, the Lord Jesus through his word, I mean... You know it, man. This book has power. Why do you think all the presidential candidates want to quote it? I mean, this thing has power. When God speaks, it puts to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And God says what he says. And and if you are in the midst of a situation like that, and you're not sure how to answer, well, he tells you how to answer. Answer biblically. Answer quoting the scripture in the context properly applied. That's the answer. So, friends, you need to know your Bibles. You need to understand what it says. You need to read it systematically. You need to study it methodically. You need to memorize it. You need to be a part of discipleship and grow and learn how to do those things. And then you need to get out there and you need to put it to use. I found far too many people who spend their lives defending the Bible Can I just say to you, you don't need to defend the Bible. Just unleash it. Just turn it loose. Just let it do what it was designed to do. God can defend himself. He can defend himself just fine. Just believe it and put it to good use. And you will find amazing things begin to transpire. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. For when the time... When for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles, here it is, of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age. Even those who, notice this, by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You see, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So just learn how to use your weapon properly. The fact of the matter is, you're going to suffer. So, it might as well be for righteousness. I mean, if you're going to suffer anyway, I got a friend who says, look, you, you can't choose your successes in life you, you never know if you know the stars are going to align just right to make everything work out for you perfectly but i like the way he says it. he says what you can do is you can choose your failures and you think to yourself what exactly does he mean well what he means is this you can choose the things that you go hard after choose the right things to go after and if they fail they fail but you failed going after the right things you can choose your failures. Go after, just choose to always go after the right things. If it happens to hit and people get saved and things that are great happen, well, praise the Lord. That's a little bit beyond your realm of control. But you can choose the things you go after. And that's really what we're talking about here. You don't want to have to suffer for your foolishness. And that's basically what it says in verse number 17. So that's the way that God prescribes that we should answer men. Men. Should we find ourselves in these circumstances? Our second point of study, your answer toward God. And this is verses 18 to 22. Some very interesting verses of scripture. Some of you have been waiting for us to get to this section right here. Everything is given to us in a context. We have to understand the context or we couldn't possibly understand what's being said. The context is the persecution of Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate example of unjust suffering for doing good. And then what that means to us as a result, verses 18 to 22. So letter A, the circumstances in this case are not persecution of you, but it's persecution for you. The preposition change makes a big difference. It's persecution for you, right? Right? So a lot of you around here have studied the Bible, and you're fully aware, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, first four verses, give us the Bible definition of what the gospel is. The gospel, according to the Apostle Paul, is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, and it's listed for us as basically being the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, oh, and by the way, according to the scriptures. So Jesus had to die, be buried, be buried. He died for our sins, be buried, raise again the third day, and all of that had to be done according to the prophecies that went on before him. Okay, that is the biblical definition for what the gospel is. Sometimes it frustrates me because people want to refer to the gospel uh, to encompass the entire body of truth of all that is good and holy and righteous. Well, I mean, that might sound good, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, just as we've been studying in the In in the book of 1 Peter, Peter's ministry was primarily to a Jewish audience, but we find this letter very clearly having a Gentile audience. And we've looked at those things already. So in 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20, we have the gospel according to Peter. So Peter's version of saying basically the same thing appears for us, for example, starting in verse number 18, where it says, "...for Christ also hath once suffered for sins..." The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So that's just another way of saying basically the same thing that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. So you basically have in verse number 18 the death and the resurrection. When you get to verses 19 and 20, you're dealing with a little more detail of what went on during the time of his burial, and so during the time of his burial, when Jesus Christ was in the tomb for 72 hours, what exactly went on during that time? Well, we get a snapshot of what went on during that time in verses 19 and 20. It says, By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing. Okay, so that's some weird stuff. Let's start to break it down. It's not that hard. By which also, what can that refer to? Well, we're going to go back to verse 18. It's by his death in the flesh and being quickened in the spirit. So by which the death leading up to the resurrection tells us where we are at, by which also, this death-resurrection thing, he also, well, when did he do that? Do we have a record in Scripture that he did it before his death? No. Do we have a record in Scripture that he did it after his resurrection? No. It had to have happened during the time of his burial. It had to have been during those 72 hours. So, Exactly how do we, okay, this preaching to the spirits in prison thing in the days of Noah. Okay, so in the days of Noah, when, when did this thing happen? What is, it, what is it that we're talking about these spirits? And we're going to talk about the spirits in a second, but let me tie it in first by saying it tells us that whoever these spirits are, that they're spirits that came from the days of Noah. And they came from the days of Noah prior to the flood because it says when the ark was still being prepared. So he's still building the ark, and something happened. So how can we possibly know what that is? Well, I got an idea. Let's see what the Bible says. And we'll go back to the book of Genesis before the flood came, and we'll see what happened. And so we're in Genesis chapter 6 because this is the story. Verse number 1, And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. And they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. You may have in your systematic Bible study reading gone through Genesis 6 thinking, not exactly sure what that's all about. Uh, But this is not that hard to understand. If you do a little comparative study and you take the phrase, sons of God, and you run it through the scriptures, and excluding the New Testament for now, just in the Old Testament scriptures, the phrase, the sons of God, does not appear very often at all. In fact, it really only appears four times. It appears, well, five times, twice here in Genesis 6, and then it appears three times in the book of Job. We're kind of, you know tailgating on Job today okay so in Job chapter 1 and in Job chapter 2 it talks about how Satan presents himself before the Lord and the sons of God were there and in Job chapter 38 it talks about it's a it's a snapshot back as God is finally responding to Job and his friends after all their foolish bickering and he says basically where were you Job on that day when I created everything and it says when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy So he refers back to a time before God, when God stepped out on creation morning and began to say, let there be light, well, the sons of God were already there. What you find is in Job 1, Job 2, Job 38, they're always angelic beings. They're supernatural creatures. They are never one time ever in the Old Testament referred to as human beings, never. The sons of God are not the godly line of Seth that married the daughters of men who were just like some pagan chicks. I don't know. It's not that. The sons of God were angelic beings that fell from heaven to take wives of human women. I know it's weird. The Bible's actually not that hard to understand. Sometimes it's a little weird to believe, but that's what it says. I mean, your science fiction movies didn't dream this up. I mean, mean, God's just telling you what happened. Okay, so that's who they are. The sons of God always represent supernatural beings. Remember Daniel chapter 3 and the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace, and then they looked in to see how they were doing, and there was a fourth man in the fire with them. Like unto the Son of God. Well, little kids in summer fun are gonna learn. I mean, that's I mean that's Jesus walking around the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? I mean Jesus went in to save the day. I mean, sons of God in the Nobody in the Old Testament is ever called a son of God, ever until Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, came to earth, lived a perfect life, died the brutal death, was buried and rose again, and then by faith in his name offers to all of us the ability to be sons of God. Now we can all be sons of God, but that's not a situation back in the Old Testament. Don't kid yourself. That's not the situation. So these sons of God most certainly are angelic beings. And these angelic beings are spiritual beings. And these are spirits. These are spirits that are kept in some sort, of reserved somehow in some prison, some sort of chains for judgment. And Jesus went and preached to these spirits in prison, which we find cross-referenced to in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So there had been a time when angels sinned, and they were reserved in chains unto judgment. And he gives us some context, because in verse 5, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah. See it? The eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. The little book of Jude, just before Revelation, says the same thing. It tells the same story, verse number 6. And the angels, which kept not their first estate... They didn't stay up in the third heaven. They came down to earth and they took women, human women. They left their own habitation, it says. He hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. So when he refers to, he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, prison which were sometimes disobedient in the days of Noah. These were angelic beings that came down. I know it's sci-fi. But this is Bible. And what you need to understand is when he preached to these spirits, don't, it doesn't say that he preached the gospel of the grace of God, and if they would just repent and call on the name of Jesus, then they would be say he did not do that. Because what he literally did was simply declare victory over death and hell. Because these angels in everlasting chains, oh, by the way, they're everlasting chains. I mean, this is not like purgatory. It's not just, you know, you kind of messed up, but we'll get you out eventually. It's not that. It's too late for them. Jesus went to declare victory over these things. Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Now, you may not be wired the way that I'm wired, and it's probably good for you. But I imagine it this way. You can imagine it your way. So Jesus Christ, all of this happens. He's down in the center of the earth. Here's all these angels that blew it. You know, he used to know them from back in the old neighborhood, you know, but now they're down there. And, you know, he's got his jail ministry, but he's not trying to get them out. And he's going to see them, and he's basically saying, "Ha, I got the keys, and you're not getting out. Now, the Old Testament saints that were reserved in a place that was called paradise or sometimes Abraham's bosom, He says, oh, I'm gonna lead captivity captive. Oh, you guys come with me because I have the keys of death and of hell and we're just gonna open these doors up right here and let's just usher ourselves right up on out of here, amen? That's what he was doing. That's what he was doing. So, hope that was interesting. But what does that really mean to you, right? I mean, interesting stuff, who cares? Okay, well, let me tell you why you should care. In your notes, Peter reminds us that the unjust suffering of Jesus led to victory over all. That should matter to you. He was put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And he did that for you so that now you can respond the way that he wants you to respond. And that's letter B, your response. In this case, it's a twofold response presented. The first one is sincerity. Because in verse number 21, it refers to your answer toward God being that of a good conscience. A good conscience. That's obeying what God said with no reservation. Your response to God is pure. It's sincere. You have a clear, good conscience about every bit of it. This is an answer of faith in the gospel. Which is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verses 18, 19, and 20. It's the direct context of what we are seeing. The just, who's the just? Who's the one that's just in verse 18? The just for the unjust. Jesus Christ is the one who is just. Who are the unjust? Talk louder. All of us, of course. Yes, that's the actual perfect right answer. Of course, the just died for the unjust. By the way, if you, if you want to share the gospel with people, 1 Peter 3.18 is a great place to use. Okay, you ask the person you're witnessing to, who is the just? Who is the unjust? They'll get it. They'll get it. And so the just for the unjust, that brings you to God, right? But it doesn't bring you to God automatically just because he did it. It brings you to God only if... You answer God purely and sincerely with a good conscience, an answer of faith in this story, in this gospel. And though you may die in the flesh, and almost all of us will except those few that make it into the rapture, you will be made alive by the Spirit. That's your salvation. That is born again, new life, Son of God in Jesus Christ. So, the question is Can you sincerely respond in faith with a good conscience in what Jesus Christ did for you? That's the, res- that's the first response He wants. He wants you with a good conscience to respond in faith to all that He did to provide for you eternal life as a free gift. I-, I never can understand how intelligent, nice people can hear the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ and understand it and reject it. I just just can't fathom that. My story is just mine, but when I was 21 years old, I received Christ as my Savior upon hearing the gospel for the first time in my life. I don't wear that like a trophy. It's just my story. In other words, the first time when I finally, I didn't grow up in church, when I finally heard the message and understood it, and the fellow sharing with me said, hey, Jeff, would you like, would you like that? <laughs> I mean, I, of course. I don't know if I actually said this. I, I think I did. Who wouldn't want that? And yet week after week after week after week in churches just like this, all around the world, this simple message is preached to people. And for some reason, they don't all want it. And I'll just never understand it. I'll just never understand it. What does God want from you? He wants an answer of a pure conscience, sincere heart before him. He wants you to believe him. He wants you to be saved. The second point, submission. Submission. And this goes into the next thing. It talks about the like figure. Baptism doth also now save us. Well, we've got to talk about that for a second. Okay, so when the Bible talks about baptism, you just need to know, it doesn't always mean water. Oh, and by the way, when the Bible talks about water, it doesn't always mean baptism. This is an error that people make when they read the Bible. Jesus said you must be born of water, and of the Spirit. And some people will say, well, that's your water baptism. No, it's not. He just said water. He didn't say baptism. He just said water. And other times it talks about baptism, but baptism isn't just in water. Baptism, I mean, John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, I mean, they said themselves, there's one coming after me, right? There's a baptism of the Holy Ghost and of fire. So there's at least three. We actually know that there's at least seven different baptisms referred to throughout the scripture. And so, just because it says baptism doesn't necessarily mean water baptism. In fact, the Bible is very clear that there, because it says, baptism doth also now save us. I mean, it does say that. I mean, we're not trying to get away from what the Bible says. There is a baptism that will save your wretched soul and give you eternal life. It is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. That happens by faith, a good conscience. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13 By one Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, are we all, those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, are we all baptized into one body? Well, that's a spiritual baptism. The baptism literally means immersion. You are immersed into this new spiritual body, the family of God, the body of Christ. That is your spiritual baptism that is the saving of your soul. But, to be fair, we got water all up in this context, right? I mean, there is water all up in here, right? So, we have to see what it's talking about, where it says, the like figure, right? Or go back even to verse 20, wherein, you know, the ark ark was preparing, wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. What are you going to do with that? Okay, well, let's look at it. Here's what you need to understand. This is in your notes. Noah's family being saved by water, does not mean the water saved them. And I'm going to prove it to you. Being saved by water does not mean the water saved them. What was the water back in the days of Noah? It was judgment. Very clear. Everybody knows that. It was judgment. They were saved from the water by building the ark. They went through the water, right, rose above the water, while all the ungodly that mocked him for all those years he was building the ark, were drowned by the water. And that message, that message, the judgment comes in the form of water, and they go through it and rise above it. That is the, what's the word in 1 Peter? The figure of what happened in your salvation. Because water baptism, the tank, okay, that water washes, it doesn't wash away your sins. It says not the putting away of the, the washing away of the filth of the flesh. And he's not just talking about you didn't take a bath. He's talking about the filth of your flesh. It's sinfulness. It's not washing away your sins. The water is not doing that. Okay? But it is a fig the like figure whereunto. So the thing about water is it's a picture, right? So that's the next point in your notes. Water baptism is a figure of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why baptism, according to its very meaning in the word, has to be a complete immersion. It's not pouring, it's not sprinkling. You have to go down into the water, and you have to come up out of the water as it pictures the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is your first step of obedience in your new life as a born-again Christian. You go down under the water and back up and out because the water pictures judgment on sin, but it doesn't hold you there. I tried that once. It doesn't work. People don't like that. No, you, you don't hold them under. That would be bad. You bring them back up out because it pictures that you rise up out of it. Amen? I mean, this is good news. So don't be afraid because this is a verse that is phrased in a way that is a little unorthodox. The context makes it very clear exactly what's going on. Now, let me just give you who are more serious Bible students just a little nugget, okay? If you are not sure what I'm talking about in the next couple of minutes, okay, oh, forget it. Don't worry about it. Ask somebody. It's okay. Okay. But some of you have been track, have been studying the Bible for a long time. And let me just say something to you. Peter here in 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21, has obviously changed his position on water baptism from the position he used to have in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 38, which see. Okay. So Acts 2, do we have Acts 2 38? Okay, so back then, this is 30, 35 years later when he's writing 1 Peter. So this is Pentecost, this is the beginning of the church, this is in Jerusalem, the whole bit, and Peter preaches that sermon about Christ and how they crucified the Messiah. Men and brethren, what should we do? Peter responds by saying, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so there's a lot of churches out there today that still preach and teach that water baptism is an essential element in your salvation and your obtaining of the Holy Spirit. And Peter preached that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, no question about it. But let me just tell you Bible students something. Again, if this is a little weird for you, just kind of don't worry about it. We have studied dispensations in this church. Either, either something has changed in the transition of the revelation Between Pentecost and when he wrote 1 Peter, which it did, by the way, which caused Peter to rightly say what he said back then and to rightly say what he said over here, either something changed in how God is dispensing out his grace, or we have a contradiction in the Bible. God forbid. So the only way you can possibly understand all of these things as they are written without changing one word of Scripture is to understand that Acts 2.38 has nothing to do with the New Testament church. None whatsoever. It's not your baptism. It's not for you. And so that's just a very clear understanding some of you will appreciate. Let's wrap it up. Verse number 22. Who, Jesus Christ, is gone into heaven And is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Angels, authorities, and powers would be demonic. Everything is subject or in subjection or submission to the ultimate authority and power of the Lord Jesus Christ because of his victory through the cross, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Remember, we started this chapter at the very beginning, actually from the chapter number two, and we talked about how it's all about authority. It's all about God's ultimate authority over our lives and how he has delegated that authority to different human institutions, government, a work structure, a family structure, and there are certain places where God has delegated authority. He wraps it up in chapter three by basically saying, I did all this And I just want to remind you, everything and everyone is subject to me. So just be smart and just surrender to it now. I mean, you don't want to go kicking and screaming. I mean, why don't you just give in and do that? I put it in your notes. Jesus earned the right to be the ultimate authority over all. Amen? He has ultimate authority, friends, over you And me too. It's always about authority. So the last question is, will you submit to him today? Let's pray together.